Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Let's pray together. God, we sang about your thousand names. And now we've got a a thousand hallelujahs for it. And it seems like a lot, but it is a thrill to worship a God that we cannot exaggerate. We cannot fathom your power, your care, your love, and what you can do. We can try to wrap our minds around it. You give us glimpses of it from time to time. But at the end of the day, we just got to stand here and say, Lord, you're bigger than that and you're better than that. And so for that reason, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Welcome to Three Creeks. My name is Joel Trainer, and I get to be the pastor here. And uh, it feels a little bit like deja vu getting to be up here again. Uh, be- and not that I'm getting to teach, but that I'm, I'm getting to thank my wife once again for Uh, pinch hitting last week and just doing an amazing job alongside Melody Marshall in telling you a little bit more about My Village Ministries. And uh, man, I I just got to tell you, I was in Pennsylvania last week and was driving back and listening to the podcast. And I was moved on on a deep level by what God is doing through that ministry and through Melody and through Morgan and I just, I am compelled to keep hitting the gas on what God is doing through our church and through that, that ministry. And so if you were here, uh, I hope that you were blessed by it. And, and I really, I, I think it begs the question, not do you want to be involved, but how do you want to be involved? Because what we're doing there uh, and through my village is so impactful that it's something that I hope that every person in our church at some point is able to, uh, to jump in on. And, and it, it, would be, uh, it would almost feel wrong to not just acknowledge that uh, my wife, Morgan, we are blessed to have her in our church, and you are, a, you are a blessed church to have her here, not just because she's my wife, but just because she's here, and that I'm even more blessed than you to get to have her as my wife. And so I'm just very grateful, and hopefully that gets me closer to the exit of the doghouse uh, as it relates to the suitcase comment that I made that Morgan revealed last week. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please do not listen to the podcast last week. I have a, a serious case of foot and mouth disease, and uh, we'll be looking for her grace on that one. Ephesians chapter 4, we're finally going to start actually making our way through the second half of Ephesians today. On G- and the first Sunday of the year in January, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. And we've made our way through chapters 1, 2, and 3. The plan originally was to try to make it all the way through by Easter, which is five weeks away, and that it would just feel wrong to try to squeeze it in. And so we're, we're just kicking it down the field a little further, and we're just going to extend the series because I don't think anybody wants to rush through this one. If you remember, Ephesians was not originally written to be a book of the Bible. There wasn't 65 books, and they weren't sitting there going, oh, how can we get 66 of them? It was a letter written by a man named Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to his friends at a church in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus at the time, if you remember, was an incredibly important city. And that's, you know, we're living in one too. 
They were a young church, just like us. They were facing cultural pressure to conform to some of the patterns of the world, just like us. They met in a school, I'm not kidding, just like us. And they needed to spiritually mature if they were going to handle everything that was going to be thrown their way, just like us. And so in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the second half of this letter, Paul is going to write to his Christian friends about sex and about alcohol and about money and about anger, about being a mom, about being a wife, about being a dad, about being a husband, about being a child, about gossip, about cursing, about fighting against evil, about fighting with Christians, and about prayer. And that isn't all. It's packed with relevant topics and practical wisdom. Do you know how many commands there are in the first half of Ephesians? Chapters 1, 2, and 3. Any idea how many commands are in the first half? One. One command and to spare you from having to look through it the whole rest of the sermon. I'll just tell you where it is. It's in chapter 2, verse 11, and it's really not even that intense. He just says, remember, twice in a row, 11 and 12, remember. That's the only command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Because the first three chapters of Ephesians is not about what we need to do for Jesus, but rather what Jesus has done for us. It is doctrinal, it is deep, it is theological, and it's the good news of Jesus. And it's the first half of the book, and that is on purpose. This is not the only time that Paul starts off a letter to his friends by talking about the gospel of Jesus. If you read the book of Colossians, you can draw a line through it and say, this is where he starts to talk about how to follow Jesus. But it seems like all he's talked about for the first half is what God has done for us. If you look at the book of Romans, the first 11 full chapters is the good news of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, he begins to explain how we ought to respond to this good news. He always starts with what God has done for us. And the reason why is because in every other area of our lives, we are used to working for it. We work, and then we get paid. We try out, and then we make the team. We pay the dues, and then we get the membership. We learn and then we get the degree. And, and our society is built on this idea that you earn your stripes and you put in your time and you pay your dues and at the end, there's a reward. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong that the world works that way, but it's not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ works in the complete opposite way in that you are rewarded right away. Boom, justified, day one. And then it propels you on to good works. There's a reason why Paul uses the word adoption when he's talking about people who come into the family of God. My daughter Willow, two and a half years old, we adopted her. We did not make Willow try out for our family. We did not look at her a year in and say, ah, not enough steps, not enough words, unlikely to be a professional athlete. I think we're going to pass on Willow. It's not how it works. It's not how adoption works. Adoption, the reason Paul uses it is because it's this moment when Willow is, she is a trainer and she is in the family and she could never say a word and never take a step and she's still in our family. 
That is the truth of the gospel, that you're in not based on your performance. The, the three most famous verses in Ephesians, I'll bet you as I read them, you'll say, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. Or I've mentioned it a couple times even during this series, the most famous three verses in the whole book, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Look at this. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you look at it, we are not saved by works, but for good works. And so if you have in your mind, I hear people talk about this. If you have in your mind, I really need to get it together before I go back to church. I really need to kind of patch my life up, clean things up, get rid of some stuff add some things before I really get back in with God, then I just, I'm just, I'm not trying to be mean, but you do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we understand these things and receive them and know they are a gift, then it propels us to walk in good works. And then this spiritual maturity that we've been talking about through this series, then it becomes, it, it starts to become a reality for us. If you are just fighting and clawing and, and if somebody were to ask you, how are you doing with God? And you would immediately go to how well you're doing for God, then you don't have a mature understanding of the gospel. If somebody would ask you, how are you doing spiritually? And your response is, I am saved by grace through faith. And because of that, I'm doing my best. That is a mark of spiritual maturity when the first thing you do is point to what God has done for you, not how well you've been doing for God. And Paul starts the whole first half of Ephesians because he wants us to understand that everything that he's written about is the basis for all of the commands in chapters 4, 5, and 6. The reason I keep harping on this over and over is because so many of us do not truly understand this. And even those of us that, are, that would consider themselves to have followed Jesus for a while or are growing in spiritual maturity or spiritually mature, we have a tendency to slip back into this earn it mentality. And that is not the gospel. Paul wants these Christians to understand what it means to be in Christ before they try to go live for Christ. To have that deep-seated, rooted truth in your heart. You could go and look at every command in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and go and ace it. And if that is where you find your value, if that is what you think deserves God's love and, and God's going to go up there and go, they're really giving it their best now, that is not an understanding of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that he just throws his grace on our heads before we do a single good work for him. Ephesians 4 verse 1, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you. Other translations, the first word of Ephesians 4 is the word therefore, which ties the, the first half with the second half, right? What does the word then mean? It means that everything that Paul's about to write is because of what he already wrote. He grounds the practical commands he's about to give in the doctrinal truths of the good news of Jesus. What all that he has already said is the basis for following Jesus. And so as we go through the second half, here, here's going to be a natural just uh, wrestling inside. There's going to be points where we're, we're talking through this stuff and you're going to go, why? Why? 
that's going to require me to change. That's going to require me to do things that are uncomfortable that I'm not used to. And we're just going to go, why? And what does it matter? And the answer over and over is going to be because you are now in Christ. And you're a Christian. And God has changed you. These are not a series of ethical commands to be attempted by everybody. This is Paul urging believers to become in practice what they are in Christ. I want to make sure you get this. You've just got to understand this before we move on. Ephesians 1 through 3 is the foundation. And Ephesians 4 through 6 is the application or the implication. Ephesians 1 through 3 is a story about justification, that you are declared innocent through Jesus. And, the story, and, and, and Ephesians 4 through 6 is about sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus. And the last one I'll share is that if Ephesians 1 through 3 is about having good theology, Ephesians 4 through 6 is about working it out. And those are in that order on purpose. And if we get it out of order, we find ourselves in a works-based salvation situation that nobody is going to be able to stand up under in this life. So Ephesians chapter 4, now that we're on the same page, six verses today. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn them on or turn, turn it there. Now I'll throw the verses on the screen in case you don't have one. Paul begins to write to these Ephesian Christians about unity and about oneness and about staying together. And look at this. This is important. He, he says that they should make every effort to keep the unity. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later, but you got to understand right out of the gate here, he says, keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let's read the first six verses together. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord. Remember, Paul's in jail. He doesn't really make a fuss about it. He just kind of tells him where he's at. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, Ephesian believers, to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. It was over all and through all and in all. I mean, the, fir the first verse summarizes what he's about to say for three chapters. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Remember, this is not a series of ethical suggestions that Everybody ought to try. This is a, these are ways to live out your faith in Christ. He's preaching specifically to Christians. And it's important to ask yourself before we start chomping all the way through this, are we going to do what it says? Like before we read it, are we going to be 
unified in our belief that this is the word of God showing us how to live our lives as Christians. Because if we read it first and then pick and choose what we want to do, it's kind of like we're going to the salad bar. You know what I'm saying? Where you pick and choose the, the things. You don't take the cucumbers, but you do take the crunchies. It's like, ah, it's not really good for you. Where you pick and choose what you like and what fits into your life. Or, or, or maybe it would be wise of us to go, okay, what do we really think about this? Is this really God's word? Am I really called to be a Christian? Yes, okay, I am a Christian. Is this really God's word? Yes, I believe it's God's word. Well, then whatever it says, we ought to give it a shot. It's important to, to consider that before you get into a, a series of commands that Paul's going to give them. He says, live a life that is worthy of the calling that you have received. In other words, make it obvious, friends. Your lives should be different. Talk different, serve different, drink different, parent different, spouse different, pray different. Worthy of the calling that you received, the name that is now on you. There's a story, I don't even know if it's true or not, but it illustrates the point. You guys ever heard of Alexander the Great? One of the world's most famous military heroes, famous for conquering nation after nation because of the courage of his army. And there's a story that there's a soldier on the front lines who fled from the battle, hid in a cave. Cowardly guy. Runs back to, the, to where Alexander the Great was and gets caught. People tell on him, I guess, and he gets brought before Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great looks at him and just says, what is your name? And the person says, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great, frustrated, says, what is your name? And the man sheepishly says, Alexander. And Alexander the Great famously said, either change your name or change your conduct. Because he didn't want anybody having, bearing his name to lack courage and to be a coward. And in the same, it's kind of what Paul's saying here right out of the gate. He's saying, if your name has changed, your conduct will follow that. How you live is going to be different because of this. If you are not interested in your life changing at all because of Christ, I would suggest skipping the next 13 weeks of this series. Because this is calling us, it's calling me to change because we are Christians. This is what Paul's main verse of these six verses is. It's his main point. He says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's saying, Ephesians, I know that in the past you have not gotten along, but get along. Be friends with each other. Keep the unity. And notice that he says, make every effort, implying that it's going to be hard work. You're going to have to make every effort, not just a little bit of effort, you're going to have to make every effort because keeping the unity among you is going to be challenging. It's not going to come natural. It will not be easy. And so make every effort to keep the unity, church. Stick together. Remember, before this church, before God brought them together, it was Jews and Gentiles sitting on opposite sides of the aisle. And God and his gospel brought them together. And now they intermix and they sit with each other. 
And Paul's saying, keep the unity. And then Paul gives four essential ingredients on how to do that. I, I, I just got to think, if I asked you, I said, raise your hand if you'd like to have a unified, let's just try it. Raise your hand if you'd like to be a part of a unified church. Yeah. I'm not going to do it because I don't want to embarrass one person, maybe, perhaps. But if I said, raise your hand if you'd like to be in a divided church that's hostile towards one another, a place where you don't really feel safe, a place where you feel judged and there's not a lot of grace, nobody would raise their hand. We all want to be a part of a unified church. And so the question becomes, are you contributing to that? Paul writes the four essential ingredients to keeping the unity. They're all in verse 2. He says, be completely humble and be gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Number one, be humble. Number two, be gentle. Number three, be patient. Number four, it's not be bears. It's uh, bear with one another in love. Because Paul knows that these Ephesian Christians are sinful human beings. At least that's how they started. And in this broken world, it is going to require every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And noticeably, Jesus Christ himself was an incredible example of all four of those. Let's just touch on each one of them briefly. The first one, he says, be completely humble, Ephesians. Be humble. One of my favorite pastors, Alistair Begg, he says this, and I agree that pride lurks behind every discord. Pride lurks behind every discord. Your favorite band ever probably broke up because of pride. Your favorite sports team ever probably broke up because of pride. Companies split. Companies go under because of pride. Marriages end because of pride. Friendships are broken because of pride. Friendships don't get reconciled simply because of pride. Pride lurks behind all discord. Churches split because of pride. Denominations split because of pride. Pride lurks behind all discord. And in a church where there is unity, the church that you imagined when you raised your hand, there's always a tremendous amount of humility. In a church that is united, a unified church, one that's making every effort to stay united, the leaders of that church would have humility. And they would never say, it's my way or the highway. But they would always be open and inviting to the ideas of other people. I hope that our leaders are that way. In a unified church, the committed volunteers, the ones that have been there for a while, they serve behind the scenes. They don't seek credit and they don't let bitterness grow when they see newer people not serving as much as them or as long as them. There's a tremendous amount of humility. In a, in a unified church, the people embody humility and they're quick to say things like, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? You were right. I, I, I just, I find it alarming when a Christian person has a very hard time saying, I'm sorry. One time I, I suggested it 
to this idea to somebody that they should apologize. And, and the response was, I'm not going to say sorry for something I don't need to apologize for. And I thought, isn't, I think I said it, I, I probably should have been more gentle, but um, I said, isn't that what Jesus did? And they said, show me the verse where Jesus said, I'm sorry. And I said, doesn't, doesn't it feel, whenever you have to say sorry for something that you don't feel like you should have to say sorry for, doesn't that feel like you're taking a hit that you don't deserve it? You don't deserve to take? Isn't that how that feels? Isn't that exactly what Jesus did when he went to the cross? He, he did not deserve any of that. And he volunteered, he says, you know what? I will take the hit on their behalf because I love them, because, because they cannot say themselves, I will take the hit. In incredible humility, this, the king of the world did that for us. He humbled himself and said, even though I didn't do anything wrong, I will die for their good. Jesus being the incredible example over and over and over of humility. Number two, be gentle. Gentleness, by the way, was not a virtue in the first century. It, uh, it was not easily accepted by these Ephesians believer. They had grown up with everybody saying, be tough, be strong, don't cry. You might have to fight a lion, so you're going to not, we can't have the gentleness stuff. And, and perhaps for you, that's how you have grown up. Perhaps you hear, be gentle, and you think, yeah, not for me. It's not how I was raised. Did you know that Jesus only described his character once in the New Testament? Jesus described himself one time, and he said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. You feel burdened? Come to me. I can handle it. I'm gentle. In the Greek, I don't know if this is probably going to talk you out of gentleness, but you're, the, the writer just implies that we ought to imagine like a, a domesticated animal. Like less, Paul's saying, yeah, less uh, wolf and more golden retriever. It's kind of what I want. I think if we get a bunch of golden retrievers together, that probably is going to contribute to the unity of our church, which I will say that I think golden retrievers are prideful dogs, <laughs> but they certainly are gentle. Proverbs 51 says that a, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Haven't we all realized, listen, haven't we all realized that in what I will, I, will, I will label it as a heated argument with your spouse or with a roommate or a friend, haven't we all realized that a gentle word, excuse me, a gentle word, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When harshness enters the conversation, the intensity ramps up, and when gentleness comes in, resolution is not that far away. I think about Jesus Christ handling that situation where the intensity was at an all-time high, where he was teaching with all of these people in the court, and the Pharisees caught the woman having an adulterous relationship, 
And rather than bringing her to Jesus in the night when they probably caught her, they waited until the morning when everybody was there listening to Jesus. They tried to make a spectacle out of it and catch him. And they drag her in front of him. They're all holding rocks. And they say, the law says stone her, Jesus. What do you say? You're going to change the law, Jesus? And they think they got him. And Jesus, with unbelievable gentleness, says, whoever's without sin, you get to throw the first stone. And you can just, just imagine hearing all those stones hit the ground or the, as the people are stunned in silence. And Jesus goes over to this woman and he picks her up and he holds her face and he says, where'd they go? He says, now go and sin no more. Jesus Christ described himself and he said, I'm gentle. And if you have the love of Jesus in your heart, it will reveal itself through the gentleness of your speech. Number three, be patient. This means to be long-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, long-souled. It means that you're committed to watching things play out. It means you're committed to the long haul. And it means that we are all under the, we all understand that all of us are under construction because aren't we? Aren't we all under construction? Here are two things that amaze me about patience. One is the amount of patience that I give myself. And two, the very little amount of patience that I give to other people. I mean, both of them are flabbergasting because we finished our basement a couple years ago. And uh, when, it, when we did, my wife kindly and gently and humbly said, hey, you think we could uh, maybe just put a carpet runner up and down these stairs because we painted them white and if we don't put a runner, it's going to be pretty dirty. And I said, oh yeah, I'll get to that. And it's been two years, friends. And I think she has probably cleaned those stairs between 30 and 40 times. And if Morgan, <laughs> she doesn't even ask anymore because she knows how patient I am with myself. Because she'll say, hey, you know, you want to do that sometime? It's like, ah, I'm going to get to it, you know? Just have some patience, okay? I've got a lot going on, Morgan. I am so, it's been two years. I am so patient with myself. Give me some time. I'm five minutes late to our meeting. Come on. You know, Columbus, traffic, rain. Give me some patience. Just be kind. But if you're late, or if, if I go to my sock drawer and it's like, oh, where, what's she doing all the time? Where's she at? She, I mean, it's just clean socks. How hard can it be? And my, just the impatience just boils up and it just comes out of me. And it's like, there's 24 pairs of clean socks in there and I can still be frustrated that my favorite ones aren't washed right when I want them. Just my, and, and I'll, you know, I just, I'm just being honest, just going, my, my irritability stems so much from my impatience with other people. We are all under construction and the work that God is doing in us is going to take the rest of our lives. Here's the last one. Bear with one another in love. This one will benefit tremendously. Perhaps you'll put yourself in the category. This one benefits tremendously those with weaknesses. So if anybody can relate to me and you go, yeah, I have a few. You're going to love this one. Because 
you're not perfect and neither am I. This is, this is what it means to bear with one another in love. It, it, it means that, man, if I get up here on a Sunday morning and just lay an egg, I, I mean this sincerely, I will do that. Just bear with me. And if the message doesn't hit you where you're at, bear with me. And if our elders make a decision that you don't like, bear with us in love. And, and in the same way, if, if you have to come in and have to admit that you screwed up, I want this to be a place where you know that we will bear with you in love. We are all under construction. If you've got to come in and say that you, and, and confess sin, which I hope that you do if that happens, if you need to, then you, we will bear with you in love. The, uh, I, I just want this place to be, uh, I want this church to be a place where our first instinct when somebody offends or when somebody does something not very well or when something, the lyrics are messed up or kids check in takes too long or the music's too loud, where our first instinct is not to judge but to just simply bear with one another in love. And of course, I want this church to be a place where if you've got a real suggestion on how we can serve people better and love people better, by all means, we want to be humble and open to that. But I would, I would suggest to you, in whatever you, church you ever go to for the rest of your life, I am not under the false idea that everybody here is going to be at Three Creeks forever. God's going to move people here and there. Wherever you go, whatever church you're a part of, if you've got an idea on how to make things better, on how to improve this or that, let me just, let me just tell you from, from the seat that I sit in, that if you would do it with humility and with gentleness and with patience and with this idea that you're just, you're giving grace, man, that is how to contribute to a unified church. Everybody wants to be a part of a unified church. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we helping become it? I, I, I emphasized this earlier where Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And he says that we need to keep it, not create it, not conjure it up, not come up with it, but keep it. Why is that important? It's important because Paul wants us to live as one because God made us one. God made us one. So finding unity is not something that we've got to really work for. It's actually rather something that we get to discover and enjoy. It's a miracle that God gives local churches. We, we immediately, when you become a Christian, you become one, which is, if you were to go into any country in the world and find somebody that doesn't speak your language, somebody who's 50 years older than you, different gender, different nation, they like different food. If you sat down next to them in a church, you do not have to find something in common to be unified with them about. You are immediately one with them because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to like the same songs, be the same age, speak the same language. We are one through Christ. And remember, this church knew a lot about division. 
This church in Ephesus, they knew a lot about division. They lived their whole lives divided. They lived their whole lives the opposite of these four things. They lived their whole, eyes, their whole lives looking down on the other group, Jews and Gentiles. There wasn't a lot of humility. There wasn't a lot of gentleness. It was, it was fighting for their turf. It was, it was being right. There wasn't a lot of patience being offered to one another. They did not bear with one another in love. They sat on different sides of the room. And so Paul says, through faith in Jesus Christ, I have made you one. So make every effort to keep it. I could probably keep going a while on this last series of things that Paul says, but instead I just kind of wrote you a poem, and I hope uh, that perhaps it will highlight the oneness that God wants for us. Paul writes, there is one body, the church, that's us, you and me, one spirit in all of us who sets us all free. One hope, that's heaven, our haven one day. One Lord, that's Jesus, who takes our sins away. One faith in the gospel, the arrival of grace. One baptism, get dunked, water on your face. One God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all for all y'all. Amen. Paul concludes these six verses by writing out the reasons that we're able to be united. These are the things that unite us. These are the things that the enemy wants us to forget. God has united us and given us a unity, a bond of peace, and the enemy wants to disrupt us, get in there, and get us fighting about things that don't really matter. Paul highlights these things that do. He highlights the majors one baptism, one faith, one Lord, one God, one hope. And if all of our eyes stay on that, then that in and of itself will be us making an effort to keep the unity. Paul knew that that would not be easy for the Ephesians. And Jesus knew 30 years before this that this wasn't going to be easy for any church. And so on the night before Jesus went to the cross for us, he went to the garden first and he prayed. And he prayed for a couple different groups of people. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for the world. But he specifically prayed for people that would believe in Jesus. In other words, Christians. He specifically prayed for Christians on the night before he was killed. And do you know what the first thing he prayed was? The first thing that Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 20 and 21, he, Jesus himself said, I pray also for those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, our unity and our oneness and our ability to bear with one another in love, to maintain a peace among us, that actually shows the world that God sent Jesus. When the world looks at a church and says somehow, despite their differences, they are united, that stands out like a light in a dark room. And so when Jesus prays this, he knows. He says, man, if, if my churches can stay together, 
if my churches can be humble towards one another and gentle and kind and patient, and if they can just bear with one another in love, if they can stay united despite their differences and preferences, that is actually going to show the world that God sent Jesus, that I am the real deal, that I am who these churches say that I am. About an hour before Jesus prayed that prayer, remember? He went to the garden at night. Do you remember what happened an hour before that? Right before, he was sitting around having dinner with his best friends, guys that he had been walking with for years. And he knew what was happening the next day. He knew what was going to happen on the Friday. And so this is Thursday night, and he took some bread, and he broke it, and he passed it around the table. And each one of his friends, his disciples, took a piece and ate it. Kind of probably wondered what he was doing. He was messing up the traditional Passover meal. This isn't how it typically went. And Jesus took a sip of the cup, and he passed it. And each one of them took a sip. This is pre-COVID. They, they, each one of them took a sip. And they, they really must have been surprised. What is Jesus doing? This is not how the Passover meal is supposed to go. And Jesus said, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been doing that in the remembrance of Jesus. And here's one special thing. Here, here's a thought right before we take communion and do it in remembrance of Jesus. Communion is the great equalizer. It levels the playing field. I, I just know in a room this size, somebody came in and you had a very spiritually dry week. You were so busy. You got caught up with all the things that you had to do. And, and this is the first time you've been with God since last time you were here last week. I, I know that in a room this size, that's just the case. And I also know that somebody in here had a great week spiritually. You woke up in the morning, you spent time in God's word, you listened to, to songs that reminded you of the truths of God. And so somebody in here had a great week, somebody in here had a bad week. It's just how it is. We're all under construction. And communion is the great equalizer because whenever anybody in this room goes to the table today, there's a couple down here, a couple back there. When you go and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice and you, and you consider what it means, all of our eyes are on Jesus. All of our eyes are on the work that he has done for us. In that moment, it's not, it, it's just not right to sit there and go, God, aren't you impressed by me? Because when we take the communion, we're doing this in remembrance of Jesus. And so I'm going to pray over our time of taking communion as a church family. If you are a Christian and you have put your faith in Jesus, this is a time that we want you to soak it in and enjoy it. If you are still on the fence, if you are not a Christian, if this is not a decision that you've made, then respectfully, I would just ask for you to just stay where you're at and just consider uh, what might be holding you back from giving your life to Jesus. The instructions will be on the screen and it'll tell you better than I can how it goes, but let me pray for you before we do it. Father, I pray for our church. Because as I wrote this message, I thought to myself, it feels pretty unified. I love being here. I, I show up on Sundays and I'm, I'm eager to be with my family here at Three Creeks. 
And upon reflection, I'm able to also say, God, that I think that this is something that you gave to us. It is something that you gave to us. One hope, one faith, one God, one Lord. You have given this to us, God. And Father, I just know that the enemy is going to try to take that away. He's going to try to weave his way between us, cause us to fight about things that don't matter. And then he's going to say, he's just going to convince us to be prideful. He's going to convince us to be harsh. He's going to convince us to dig our heels in, prove that we're right. He's going to make us be impatient. And he's going to convince us, he's going to try to say, forget about them. And Father, I just ask for your protection on our church, that you would help us to be a unified church, that is humble, that, that you would help us be people that from the depths of our heart, we say, yeah, I might not be right. Father, would you help us to be gentle? Would you help us to be patient? Would you help us to bear with one another in love? Father, would this church be one that is marked by grace and forgiveness and kindness? May this be the safest place because you gave us this unity, Father. And so through these things, we ask God that you would help us to keep them. Father, thank you for sending your son and thank you for giving us communion. Thanks for a church that wants to make sure that Jesus says the main thing. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.